It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. How does today's social unrest around race differ from the uprising that followed Trayvon Martin's death in 2012? Do today's demonstrations parallel the civil rights movement in the 1960s? Alicia Garza is an organizer and activist who co-founded Black Lives Matter. She says the issues bubbling to the surface are long overdue. Whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable with the slogan of defund the police, I think it's important for us to be grappling with what actually keeps communities safe in this moment. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, which was held online last week. The anti-racist demonstrations against police brutality are happening in surprising places like Wyoming and Idaho, as well as cities across the country. White people and minority groups are joining black people in calling for justice. Alicia Garza, who founded Black Futures Lab, says she longs for this to be a moment of change. Rules and roles in communities need to be re-examined so that black people aren't disenfranchised. Questions about punishment versus safety need to be looked at within police departments, she says. Garza speaks with Michael Eric Dyson, a sociology professor at Georgetown. Dyson wrote the book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Washington Post political reporter Eugene Scott leads the conversation. Here's Eugene Scott. There's so, so many places we can start right now, but I'm very interested in just hearing from you all. When you, when you look back on the past month, we should say, or at least the past three or four weeks uh, that have led to um, a national uprising and, and deep disgust and concern uh, with anti-Black racism and white supremacy across the country in places that we perhaps have never seen uh, this type of response. What are some of the first things and thoughts that come to your mind, Alicia? Well, first and foremost, you know, it's amazing to see twice in my lifetime now such transformation happening across the country. I know when I talk to my elders, you know, there's a, a sense that everything is possible right now. And that is also true when I talk to folks in my peer group. I think that, you know, while this is an incredible moment of uprising and an incredible moment of reckoning, I really long for this to also be a moment for change. I think there are a lot of rules that have been rigged against Black communities for a very long time that we need to see the courage and drive the political will to actually start to shift. I think the other thing that's really important right now that is finally becoming a robust national and global conversation is a conversation around policing and safety in our communities. And I feel really good about the reckoning and the grappling that is happening right now, whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable with the slogan of defund the police. I think it's important for us to be grappling with what actually keeps communities safe in this moment. And when it comes to black communities in particular, is safety only achieved through punishment or is safety achieved through uh, making sure that we fix and rebuild the infrastructure that has been denied Black communities for so long. What about you, uh, Professor Dyson? What are some of the first things that come to your mind about this moment? Well, uh, like Ms. Garza, it is, it is striking that we have seen yet another uh, uprising, rebellion, 
uh, resurgence and revival of a spirit of resistance that has barely been seen in this country since the civil unrest of the 1960s. And it is directly attributable to the work that Ms. Garza and her colleagues have done by ingeniously fostering an environment where a hashtag becomes a statement and principle, an ideal, an aspiration, and a movement. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. That's like joining Chuck Berry, Martin Luther King Jr., Ida B. Wells Barnett, and throwing in some Aretha Franklin. That's just a convergence of so many different aspects of our identities. Uh, the civil rights movement stated the goal, the aspiration to gain voting rights in 65, before that civil rights in 64, and then in the aftermath of Dr. King's death, the Fair Housing Act. But Black Lives Matter is the articulation of an ideal. It's the articulation of a principle. It's the articulation of an aspiration. And it's the articulation of a, a reaffirmation to black people. Yeah, black lives matter and they ought to matter. And to see what's going on now, the pushback of black people to insist that this is the moment. You know, people keep asking me, well, what's different now? What's different now is, it's different now. It's different because people, I've been doing interviews all over the world. They didn't do that before on Mike Brown and Mike Brown had a national circumference within which his memory took place. But this is a global, uh, if you will, acknowledgement. To match the global pandemic, it's a global explosion of consciousness. And that is attributable to our young, brilliant black people like Ms. Garza and others who have led the way. Young people have always led the way. SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, John Lewis, Diane Nash, Julian Bond, led, of course, by many leaders at many multiple sites. It is not a leaderless organization. It is a multiple site of leadership that is articulating goals, ideals, and aspirations. So I am heartened when I see the world has finally caught up to where black people have been. And I can imagine some black people are tired. Um, and I know that black people are frustrated and they said, we ain't here to teach white folk what to do. I was doing this uh, at Georgetown. My students were saying, we didn't come here to teach young white people what to do. And I got in with them. I said, yeah, we didn't come here to teach you. I said, oh, but, but I'm a professor. So actually I did come here to do that because that's my job. And, and I tell white people, if you meet one black person that's tired, go on to the next one. Because we, 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 we running a relay here. So somebody had the baton and they wore out. But the next person running the leg may not be worn out. So black communities are heterogeneous. They are differentiated. They are complicated and nuanced. And it is a time not only for white supremacy to be assaulted, which I'm glad. It is not only a time for the dominant white supremacist ideology to be attacked. It is also time for black people to look inward and understand the resources at our disposal and in connection with other people who have joined the movement. And, and hallelujah, you got Latinx people, you got Asian folk, you got First Nation folk, you got indigenous folk, you got the Rainbow Coalition for real joining the movement. So when I look out and I see the devastating denial of black life, black death as the premise and predicate of American democracy, which it has been, the death of black aspiration which is what slavery was about, reinforcing an ideal that we were nothing 
to see the uprising of black people and claiming global recognition has been a remarkable thing. And despite the deaths of Ms. Breonna Taylor and Mr. George Floyd and Mr. Ahmed Arbery and so many countless others, trans people, women, and black men alike, we have at this moment the possibility of truly and fundamentally transforming politics of police. And I think, and I'll end by saying, yes, Ms. Garza is right. You might be uncomfortable with the notion of defunding the police, but you might not be uncomfortable with the results of what that means. We done tried everything else. We done tried police community relations. We've tried enhancing relations between law enforcement and black communities. We've tried making them live in the same neighborhood so that they will see a difference. That ain't helping. This is not a policy problem. It is a philosophical problem and it is a culture problem. The immediate response to see me as a threat and to demonize me, we've got to purge out of the consciousness of these white folk and others, black people as well and brown and red and yellow people who police us, a, 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 an instinct uh, to murder us. You know, when you're driving along and they've done these psychological studies, when you see somebody come across your horizon, the first thing is to drive toward them before you ride, drive away from them. And so with black people, we have been that object. You may not be for defunding the police, but I want to take the fun out of killing us. I want to take the fun out of murdering and massacring us. And I want to fund those programs and policies like the ones put forth by Ms. Garza and others that will have the chance of transforming this society in which we live. I will not talk this long again ever, but I had to get that out. I had to recognize Garza. I had to recognize Black Lives Matter. And I had to recognize the moment we're in. Absolutely. I remember uh, I was a political reporter uh, in 2012 uh, after the Trayvon Martin killing, which was my introduction uh, to Black Lives Matter. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and it, it was, um, as you know, Phoenix is not a place with a bustling large uh, Black population, so you would hear about it, but it wasn't what was happening to the, to the degree that we saw in, you know, uh, metropolitan areas with large black uh, populists. But then I remember Mike Brown in Ferguson. By that time, I was up in grad school in Boston and I saw so many uh, protests and responses and there was attraction that was happening. But this time, this time I saw marches in Alaska and Idaho mm -hmm. and Wyoming. And, you know, Ms. Garza, I would just love to hear your thoughts as someone who has seen uh, Black Lives Matter go from being painted as this fringe movement by uh, its opponents to this idea and this value that recent surveys say the majority of Americans are behind. What's your thought and your reaction to that? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And judging by what my email inboxes look like, threats and praise alike, mm -hmm. I can say that this is 100% a different moment. I think one of the things that I'm grappling with, though, is not around, you know, uh, where were Black folks at, because I feel like Black folks are very clear about the fact that Black lives should matter, and we may have different approaches to how we do that. But I will say that seven years later, it is important to see uh, white folks now joining this movement. I think there are folks who might say things like, where have y'all been? Because we have been here for almost a decade. But I will also echo the sentiments of Professor Dyson and say that, you know, it's important that you're here now. And the question that I think I grapple with a lot in this moment, when we look at the trajectory and the history of Black Lives Matter, 
and also the embracing of it now is that it really is up to us to make this a moment that we capitalize on. And by capitalize, I don't mean, you know, everybody slap Black Lives Matter on your website or on a t-shirt and profit off of it. What I mean here is to actually make Black Lives Matter where you are. The fact of the matter is, you know, if we were together right now in Aspen, um, we would be having this conversation, right, with a with an audience that actually doesn't look like this panel. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think actually what needs to happen here is that, you know, when we talk about divesting from systems that don't benefit us, we also have to divest from practices and procedures and policies that don't benefit us either. And so part of what divesting looks like in, in this case would actually be to figure out, you know, not just how do we diversify our environment, uh, but how do we change how we lead in this moment? How do we change um, who is leading us in this moment? How do we change how we direct resources and power in this moment? And how do we also shift the way that we understand what Black Lives Matter can mean in our immediate environment, as well as in, in our communities and in our country and across the globe. And I make this point in particular because I think that, again, judging by what my inbox looks like, both threats and praise, um, what is true is that there is a major backlash that's happening to the popularity of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter has not been as mainstream as it is right now. In 2013, when we started Black Lives Matter and leading all the way up until the 2016 election, saying Black Lives Matter was almost like political suicide. And that's why you couldn't get any major candidate to say it without taking a gulp of water first, right? <laughs> because they were very worried about um, the perception that were attached to and wrapped around Black Lives Matter. Of course, we have not been concerned about that because we've always known that we've been on the right side of history. But I can say just to make a quick parallel that in the same way that people would tell us now to change the slogan of defund the police to make the police better or transform the police or whatever, <laughs> you know, people told us this also in 2013 and said, well, how can you make your slogan more appealing to people like me? And I'm really glad that we didn't change our slogan to all lives matter or black lives matter too. Um, we've got to be able to, as a part of the reckoning that this moment is offering us, we have to be able to sit with the discomfort of the shifts that we are being asked to make right now. Um, and so lastly, I just wanna say that for me, when it comes to reimagining what this moment can and should look like. It also means reimagining the role of, of white folks in our communities um, and in our, you know, in our decision-making bodies. It means reimagining the roles in which uh, decision-makers have, have taken up that frankly have disenfranchised black communities from being able to make decisions about our own lives um, and to be able to do that in partnership and in, in, in interdependence. I wanna be very clear here and very specific that 
Uh, policing is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, rules and practices and policy and culture needs to shift in our boardrooms and our C-suites and our schools and our economy, um, all throughout our society. So don't think that to be a part of Black Lives Matter, all you need to do is slap it on a t-shirt or on your website or send out an email talking about you know, how you're committed to diversity and inclusion. Actually think about what that looks like in your boardrooms. Think about what it looks like in your churches and in your workplaces and in your homes. Um, you can make Black Lives Matter exactly where you are right now. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. The Aspen Ideas Festival was held all online for the first time ever this year. If you missed it, you can still watch the conversations on our website, aspenideas.org. Find talks from Anthony Fauci, Stacey Abrams, Bill Gates, Maria Ressa, Mitt Romney, and many others. Go to aspenideas.org and start exploring. That's aspenideas.org. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Eugene Scott. I think one of the uh, most interesting things about this moment is seeing the conversation focus on policing, but go beyond issues of public safety as well. Some of the more interesting uh, conversations I've been following uh, have been about uh, the silencing of Black people in the mainstream media, uh, Black and racial, racial issues within uh, the context of uh, white evangelicalism and, and racism within LGBT communities as well. It's just been um, incredibly broad in terms of people uh, needing to vocalize how Black lives have not mattered as much as they should have in so many different spaces. And I was very interested, uh, Professor Dyson, as someone who's working with multiple generations, be they, you know, uh, younger millennials and Generation Z, but also your colleagues and your elders, what are some of the new conversations you're hearing uh, that inspire you that perhaps were not being as entertained during previous generations? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Look, uh, first of all, black lives have to matter to black people. And black lives have to matter in black minds, right? You remember Martin Luther King Jr. near the end of his life saying, I'm black and I'm beautiful. I mean, the, the predecessor linguistic move bef before black lives matter that was this national and this branded in both the good and uplifting uh, senses of that word and with the commercial and commodified consequences is black is beautiful, right? right? So black is beautiful was not only an assertion of an aesthetic ideal, it was the assertion of an internal spiritual orientation that permitted us to embrace the beauty of blackness across the globe and across the spectrum because we were seen as nasty and ugly light versus dark and what was seen as more appealing and what was seen is more demonized. And Martin Luther King Jr. would stand up along with Malcolm X and talk about how black was seen as nasty and ugly and dark and dirty and so on and wash me as white as snow. So we were literally reinforcing unconsciously and collectively uh, a subordination of blackness to other realities. In the book of Solomon, I am black but comely. What? But is a conjunction that suggests the preceding clause was contradicted by what comes afterward. So beautiful and blackness can't come together. That was extremely important. So Black Lives Matter is such an ingenious moment because the moment becomes a movement and the moment becomes a, a means by which we begin to interrogate our own self-destructive practices and the way in which we ain't acknowledge it. So we can be homophobic and black and say Black Lives Matter, but we dog in the trans people. 
and trans people are dying in our communities in devastating ways. We can acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of people who are being killed by police at a certain level are black men, but to also talk about the way in which black women's bodies have been policed in so many other ways, not just by the police, right? And so, and, and let me put in a word here, it's important, and then I'll answer your question for sure, it's important that we talk about the police first, because if you ain't here, you can't have no argument in corporate America. If you ain't here, you can't go to church. If you dead, you ain't got no conversation. You are, you are being conversed about, but you don't have a conversation to have. So th this is why it's important to start with the police, because if I can't assume that when you stop my car fishing for a reason to get me into trouble, and then it ends with like Walter Scott with me being killed, Sandra Bland with me being dead two or three days later, then we don't have the baseline of protection that allows us to move forward. So it's extremely important to do that. And by the way, the police issue is one that joins Black Lives Matter, uh, Ms. Garza et al. with an Al Sharpton. Reverend Al Sharpton, right? We talk about Big Luther, Small Luther. We talk about Big Al, Small Al. We talk about still had the same hair, cold-blooded. He had the James Brown follicular fidelity because he paid homage to his, 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 the man who loved him. And he said, if you love me, then put your hair like mine. So Al Sharpton, if you turn it to sideways and look at a silhouette, I dare you to tell me the difference between Al Sharpton and George Washington. Oh, boy. That's a political re-excavation, an excavation of a political uh, uh, orientation that's deeply entrenched in American democracy. That gives new meaning to Whig and Tory. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> the point is that Al Sharpton, when he was in those running suits, and when Negroes thought he was out of, out of control and he ain't our leader and he's, he doesn't have the right class, he was talking about police brutality. Bourgeois Negroes thought that's for you Negroes in the street who be messing up. Those of us who abide by the law shall not be attacked. God darn it, and it seems that it's everywhere. It metastasized. So Al Sharpton was really a point man for a prescient understanding that the central argument about black life in terms of a post-civil rights 1960s movement would be the police. Garza et al. come along and they revive that sense, but reinfuse it with new meaning. Now they began to attach layers of gender, of sexual orientation, of class, and they began to articulate the necessity for a new generation to grasp hold of this. So in the minds of my colleagues and the people who are responding, Miss Garza is so right. Why give up on the language that allowed you to articulate an ideal so deep and profound that you knew it was doing something because it made white folk uncomfortable and it made comfortable un-Negroes uncomfortable. So for me, it's extremely important to hold fast to that. Look at Colin Kaepernick, four years ago, bowing down uh, on the gridiron, trying to be respectful. Mr. Nate Boyer tells him, hey, I'm a veteran. If you want to honor veterans, then kneel. And so he did that. He was demonized. Now the man has got a statue somewhere. He might be up there next to Kobe and Magic Johnson somewhere. Now they want to put him on a dollar bill. Okay, that's a lie. But what I'm saying is that there is a transition uh, suddenly, but the sudden is not sudden. The sudden is a buildup. Black Lives Matter was, was, the, was the wave that crashed against white supremacy for 150 years Miss Garza and her colleagues simply named it. And when they named it, they were able to give it an identity and that identity had seen it through. Yes, there is resistance. Yes, there is nastiness. 
you know, look, I've been getting death threats for 32, 34 years. I've been out here doing it. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. They just wrote your old fashioned nasty notes. And then they saw you in the street. There's that nigger. Yeah, that's me. I'm the one. I'm the one. Yep. NWA. That's what I do. So the reality is in my time and with my colleagues and with older people, we look and we celebrate what is going on. We celebrate the beauty and the power. Now, we don't always agree, right? Not just with Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about with younger Black people, with the cancel culture, miss me with that. And what's interesting with the zero sum, that's a white supremacist ideal masquerading as a Black idea, right? To be intolerant of other Black people, and if you mess up and you make a mistake, you can't forgive nobody, that ain't right. And, and I understand, right, recently with J. Cole and the, the brouhaha with him and um, No Name, right? And here's the beauty of that. Both of them are amazingly articulate and beautiful black people. And I think there's an argument to be made. Don't be policing black women's bodies, speech and style. That's absolutely true. But I'm from the old school. If, if, if the, the media, social media especially, has given us snark and nastiness. Like, can you say hello? My name is Michael. I'm, what's your name? Can we talk? You disagree with me. Why I got to be a handkerchief head? Why I got to be a light-skinned sellout? Okay. I am like here. But what I'm saying is, why, why I got to be, why I got to be all them names. So I do want to police your tone if you're being nasty and vindictive, because guess what? Turn the rage outward to white supremacy, but black people have not yet comp dealt with the way in which we rage against each other. And the beauty of Black Lives Matter is when it talks about self-care, we used to joke about that. Oh, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't stop in the middle of the march and go, hey, I need to take a massage. We were dismissing those young people's understanding. But when they opened Dr. King's body at 39, he had the heart of a man 65 years old. Maybe a little bit more self-care would have been beautiful. Maybe it would have helped him. Maybe it could have spared us so many martyrs who continue to live, but they were dead in their own bodies and dead to their consciousness about how they needed to take care of themselves. So I celebrate and acclaim what is going on with this movement politically, socially, spiritually, metaphysically, and I think symbolically. All that brought together, and my generation says, hats off, we acknowledge what's going on, we want to continue to forge connections, and it's upsetting a lot of white folk, but it's also setting a lot of folk, white folk right. And they have a language to hold on to, and it's, it's something that's precise and concise for them to say, yeah, Black Lives Matter. And that notion, if they keep saying it, even as a mantra, and I know Ms. Garza said, don't just put it on your shirt, but put it on your shirt. Don't just put it on your website, put it on your website. Don't just put it on your books, put it on your books. And also put it on something else, right? And I think that, look, it's like with romantic love. You can't live on romantic love for 30 years and 40 years. No, you can't, but you need it to start. And you need it as the kindling to be on the fire. So we need the branding of Black Lives Matter. That's the ingenuity of this generation. We need to Facebook and social media, all that stuff but we need to connect it to deeper wells of social resistance and political uh, intensity that allow us to leverage our history in new forms. So we have to thank Black Lives Matter as often as we can because they've given us new energy, new insight, and new purpose for our social rebellion. And white folk are listening, and that's a good thing. It is a good thing. And something else I believe this moment has given us is a deep awareness of the, the toll that being an advocate for racial uh, equality has on someone mentally and physically uh, and spiritually. And we are having conversations, as you noted, about the importance of self-care and taking care of yourself mentally in ways that 
perhaps were not as common uh, in, in years past. And so I, I write about identity politics for the Washington Post, and I write about these issues every single day. And when I'm interviewed, I'm often asked, how do you, how do, you do it? How do you handle it? And, I, and, and I'd say I have a great family and an awesome group of friends, but most importantly, I've got a really good therapist. Um, and I would love to hear you all talk about, as we're wrapping things up, the importance of self-care and what you're doing to make sure that you uh, don't burn out as quickly or, or maybe even at all, because there's so many people who are very new to this moment and this movement and becoming overwhelmed already and don't know how to process a lot of what they're taking in. So it would be great to hear your insight and your counsel there. Mm, I can start here. I mean, it's a very important question and I think it's one that deserves a broad answer. So for me, of course, there's a number of different things that I do. I ride the Peloton bike four times a week, 45 minutes a day. I, you know, have a therapist and, you know, weekly get to talk about all the things that I'm dealing with um, in, in relationship to the world and life. I also have a great partner and a great set of friends who keep me uh, in deep belly laughs most of the time when I really need it. And I, I have to be honest that I have realized over the last decade that I can't yoga my way to care. <laughs> I can't bubble bath my way to care. That actually care and caring and connection and interdependence is a cultural value that we have to adopt. If I'm doing my things to buy myself care, um, then there are still people in my community that can't access that. And so I like to talk about self-care as a function of community care. And I do the work that I can to make sure that the environments that I'm building, uh, you know, the work that I do at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund and other institutions and organizations we really build into our culture that we need people to be long distance runners. And so what that means is a different mindset and approach, right, to how we do this work and connecting to purpose, right, in addition to connecting to outcomes. So, you know, every week when my team and I are talking about the work that we're getting ready to move, we start with just checking in with each other. What do people need? Are you feeling anxious? How can we show up for you? And that's different than telling people to take a day off or take a week off or take a bubble bath or sending somebody a pass for yoga. Um, and, and I think this is important because so often, at least over the last decade, there's been lots of debates about self-care and, you know, whether or not self-care is accessible, you know, whose idea is that people quote Audre Lorde, but then they quote her wrong. Um, you know, we have to understand that, you know, part of what it means to be an act of political warfare is to change the way that we orient and organize ourselves about around the work that has to be done. Um, the work of changing policies and changing laws is not separate from the work of changing culture and changing our relationships to each other that have been shaped by systems that deem us disposable. And so if we are adopting those uh, practices and habits and trying to wash over them and call them something that they're not without fundamentally changing them, then we are literally just advancing uh, a political agenda that is not ours and it's not beneficial to us. And so in this moment where we are constantly pivoting because the systems uh, that organize our lives are actually 
deeply unsustainable and so they tend towards crisis uh, you know we have to do a readjustment of ourselves in this moment not just to provide mutual aid which is important not just to make sure that people are caring for themselves which is important but to actually change our practices so that care is at the center of the work that we do externally and internally and it provides infrastructure or a safety net as some people might say um, to you know not just the freedom fighters who are out in the streets right now but all of the people who are working to make social change real um, and so we have to i think readjust our way of understanding care from um, an individual's responsibility to access as they can to environments and cultures that we nurture that um, care for each other as much as we care for ourselves. Amen. Professor Dyson, thoughts on self-care, how uh, individuals can care for themselves as they're trying to engage these really difficult topics? Well, you know, Ms. Garza has brilliantly, eloquently articulated it. I'll just add a couple things. Um, when you think about that ethic of care she speaks about, a radical ethic of care that is pervasive and not just concentrated, right? Because if it's concentrated, it's me and mine, and we took care of each other, and it's bet is good. But pervasive means we look at the structures that encourage people, seduce them into non-care, believing that they're not worthy of care, that you're not worth a bubble bath, you're not worth a massage, you're not worth a meditation, you're not worth standing back and listening to Luther Vandross and Anita Baker. It's not worth it to you. You are not worthy of some other elements that you think are extraneous to your being when they are central and determinative in a fundamental fashion. And we have not been allowed, we've not been permitted to think of ourselves in that way. But Gandhi said, look, if I don't take care of myself first, I can't even really help you. And so even when you own the plane and they give you the announcement, they say, when the oxygen mask comes down, put your mask on first. Because if you ain't breathing, you can't help your kids. And so that kind of ethic of self-care is not simply utilitarian, it has a function of survival, but it also, as Ms. Garza suggested, has a nationwide, a global character, right? A community's self-care. Black people have been seduced into self-destruction to not care. We don't care about each other because we don't care about ourselves and not caring about ourselves because we've been taught that the other person is not worthy of consideration. And so that's why I'm always careful to say, well, treat me like you want to be treated. Well, slow down with that because you're treating yourself pretty funky too. So don't, don't do that to me. So at that level, the golden rule still prevails, but a golden rule that has political and social con consequence. That is to say, how we teach people to love and embrace each other and nurture each other. And that's what I meant. She said it more eloquently about the cancel culture and speaking nasty and snarkiness. We ain't got to do all that. You know what I'm saying? And you ain't going to cover that up being Gen Z or millennial or I don't care. If you rude, you rude, Doc. You a rude old fool, you a rude young fool. You just rude. And don't be trying to dress it up like it's a political ethic of assertion. No, you just rude, all right? And so at the same time, however, we understand that as a people who have been disrespected, the politics of self-care bleed out into a politics of respect for the other. And I see so much disrespect of people of all ages and stages that we have to really discourage. So in that sense, I think self-care is extremely important. 
I'm listening to some Luther. I'm listening to some hip hop. I go old school. I chill out. I used to go to the movies, but the pandemic, we have a dual pandemic going on. One about race and one about the virus, but they share in common, I can't breathe. Right? The police beating us down. We can't share the oxygen of freedom on the one hand, and we literally can't breathe on the other, and they're both interconnected. That's the vicious underside of an intersectional reality of our lives. But at the end of the day, you know, and when I get back out, I'm gonna get a therapist too. I had one. I'm gonna be like y'all, you know, y'all up here therapy shaming and stuff. You know what I'm saying? I got a therapist too, man. Come on. So, (laughs) but it's extremely important. I'm an ordained Baptist minister for 41 years. And black people say, oh no, you just need Jesus. No, Negro, no, you do a little bit more than Jesus now. You need a little bit more. You need, you know, that, that scripture that says when the disciples came to Jesus and we could not cast out the demon. And Jesus says, well, do you know why? And they said, because of prayer and fasting. And Jesus said, and Prozac, you Negroes need Prozac. You need some chemicals, right? You need chemical remediation. And so I think once black people embrace the necessity of therapy, of talk therapy, of sometimes chemical intervention because of the dopamine or whatever else is being released in our brains and the the chemicals that are the endorphins that we need to release. When we find the way to have radical revolutionary black joy in the midst of black pain, then the therapeutic possibilities are opened up and we learn to embrace them without shame. Let's not shame each other, but let's embrace the possibility of our self-care because we care for each other. Self-care is critical, other care is mandatory, and we care for each other is the fundamental premise, I think, of black survival in this country. Well, it has uh, been a joy and a privilege having you both with me, and I appreciate you caring enough about this topic to uh, share your time with me and all of our listeners, and we hope to be able to continue this at another time and uh, to follow both of you all on your, on your journeys, on your work, and on social media. Thank you, my friend. You do great work at the Washington Post, man. I read you all the time. You're brave. You're courageous. You're insightful. You're chocolate charming and handsome Hollywood, brother. You're doing your thing. Chocolate charming, though. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm Both trying. of y'all. Look at Garza. Look at that. See, see what I'm saying? Light skin, one thing. Chocolate charm over here. Garza and Scott. You know what I'm saying? Everybody can't have everything. You just can't have it. You just can't have it. Good. You all have a good one. All right. God bless you. <laughs> Michael Eric Dyson has written more than 20 books on race, race relations, and figures like Malcolm X, Barack Obama, and Jay-Z. Alicia Garza co-created Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which is an international organizing project to end state violence and oppression against black people. Eugene Scott is a political journalist for The Washington Post. Previously, he reported for CNN. Their conversation was held earlier this month as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed and recorded by the Aspen Ideas Festival team, which includes Kitty Boone, Keelan Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Kristen Cromer, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, Azalea Milan, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.